I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we ask whether golf architecture can help change the culture of the game. Tackling this question with me is Christine Frazier. Christine is a Canadian golf architect who has worked with Martin Hawtrey on courses like the Toronto Golf Club, La Hinch in Ireland, and Royal Birkdale and Sunningdale in England. More recently, she has teamed up with fellow Canadian architect Jeff Mingay, on a long-term renovation at Beaconsfield Golf Club near Montreal. Christine offers a really fresh and necessary perspective, and not just because she's one of the few women in the industry, though it, it certainly has to do with that. It's also because she has put a lot of thought into the ways that design can promote a more inclusive environment at golf courses. This is something we don't talk about very often because we get caught up in topics like routing and strategy and aesthetics and so on. But golf courses are not just artworks and they're not just fields of play. They also have a social function. They have an influence on who gets to play and enjoy the game. And it's important, I think, that that influence is a healthy one. So that's what we're exploring today. And let's get to it. Here is Christine Frazier. So you are in Sweden right now. What are you up to? Yes, I'm in Sweden. No, it's uh, it's strictly pleasure. Um, we're here visiting family, so having a little week to ourselves and enjoying the nice, long, sunny days. Awesome. Are you playing any golf? I did not bring my golf clubs. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> I need it every once in a while. I think about golf way too often, so this is a nice break. I, I totally assumed that, that you were there on a job, but it's it's good to hear that there is there is some leisure in your life as well. Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty good at balance that way. So my understanding, Christine, is that your introduction to golf came at a course that your grandparents built in 1976 called Camden Bray's Golf and Country Club. Could you tell me that story? I can. It's uh, it's so interesting and fascinating to me, especially now in the in the line of work that I'm in. That my grandparents, who who really knew nothing about owning or operating or designing or building a golf club, were able to do that. So they bought a piece of architect or sorry agricultural land um, to the east of Toronto and just decided that that's what they wanted to do because they imagined a lifestyle of working hard during the golfing months and then having a few months off in the winter would, would suit them. And it's still in the family today. And that's where I grew up. And my mom, my mom made her career there and my uncles did as well. And so that's my introduction to golf. And I was really able to get to know all aspects of how a golf course functions from the business side of things to the agronomic side of things. So it was a really, really impressive introduction and privileged introduction <laughs> to golf. How would you describe the course itself? Um, it's uh, certainly not on any top tens. 
but it's um, it's quite unique in the sense I, I have so much admiration for my grandfather because his vision, just he was ahead of his time. There there aren't any bunkers. The only things that are irrigated are the are the tees and the greens. So it's a really minimal impact type golf course in terms of the consumption and in terms of playability. Um, so it's just a community golf course. There's nothing special about it. Anyone can play. The green fees are really reasonable. No restrictions on time. And and I and you know there's a lot to be said about that type of accessible golf course that I, I think has influenced the way that I envision golf. Yeah, I mean that that kind of stuff is more important in a lot of ways than great architecture. I think so. And if if you value accessibility and inclus- inclusivity, then there's a lot to be learned from from this type of of property. So when you were growing up, were there any particular aspects of the operations of that course that you were really interested in? Or what or was it all just kind of like, you know, this is what my family is doing, this is boring? No, it was originally it was the latter. And I think as I um, was more exposed to different types of golf courses and different models of golf courses and memberships, I I really became quite interested in in how a golf course can integrate into the community and how people react to the golf course and how a golf course can really be this medium to connect people. And so that's what I found most curious and most interesting is how people engage on a golf course. How would you describe that? What what does it mean how people engage on a golf course? It's something that I think about a lot. Um, And to me, I I mean, I I think I got into golf architecture, not because I have any revolutionary ideas about design theory or design philosophy, but just because I'm so fascinated on human interaction and and it's just happened to be the medium that I chose to facilitate that and 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 the best I find the best architecture is that is when you don't realize how impactful the round was because it was so memorable or because there was a particular conversation that was so valuable or vulnerable and and it has to do with the things that aren't necessarily written down in the golf architecture books, it has to do with the way that the the wind was blowing or the walk between certain holes allowed you to have a continuation of a conversation. Nothing that's so tangible, which is which is why perhaps the creativity side of things that I enjoy allows me to do all architecture, just kind of get into the more abstract elements of design. Yeah, I would I would imagine this has been discussed in architectural circles outside of golf a lot. I don't necessarily know much about it, but there's a way that you can approach architecture as a purely aesthetic thing. You get obsessed with the visuals and, you know, the details of that, or you can approach it through the lens of the human and how humans might interact with what you build. And it sounds like that is what you're most most interested in. That's exactly it, and I, and I am uh, have a master's in landscape architecture, and we 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 always we always were talking about the connection between whatever you're designing and 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 the person who's using it, and how people move through it and walk on it, and 
and feel it and touch it and how you are picking up your tea off the ground and you're touching the ground is this like literal just these small interactions you have with the thing that you're designing and how that impacts you when you walk away. Does your family still run the course? They do. They do. <laughs> so so who's who's there now? Like and what are what are their roles? Is there a general manager and a yeah, you know, so, superintendent stuff like that? Um typically it was my mother was in charge of the accounts. Um later got into a bit of the pro shop gig. My uncle is the bar and restaurant. And then my other uncle is outside on the grounds. So it was a full Amazing. family business. And my mom's recently retired and she's she's busier than ever, as that sometimes goes. Oh, yeah. Um, but my two uncles are still there every day. Oh, that's fun. All right. So you have worked for Martin Hawtrey, the famous English architect, for several years now on projects in Europe as well as in Canada. One course that immediately jumps out to me on your resume with Hatri is La Hinch Golf Club in Ireland. One of the great Lynx courses in the world, old Tom Morris design, renovated by Alistair McKenzie in the late 20s. I'm fascinated by the course, but I have never been there. So I'm curious, what most impressed you about La Hinch in your time there? I think we had alluded to it earlier, but it's this fascinating connection between community and golf is what what really inspired me about La Hinch. Um, there's really no distinguishing where the golf course starts and where it ends. It's just this this small community who who allows you to walk on the golf course to to access the beach and walk to the bar in between nines and come back and play. And and apart from the architecture which is which is some of the best in the world. It is that special thing that you can't recreate that Lynch has, this je ne sais quoi of community engagement and interaction that made Lynch so special to me. And apart from apart from the golf, it's just the Irish have this really great way of making you feel like you've been friends for your entire life. This this element of hospitality and kindness and generosity that again creates this golfing experience that makes you want to come back and makes you say, wow, that was life-changing. You said that it can't be recreated. And I, I believe that because that course has been around for a long time. And so it has had a long time to establish a unique relationship with its community. But given that you're an architect, do you think about how that might be recreated at say like a brand new course how do you how do you create that what has been generated through history at la hinch how do you just sort of summon that at a at a new place yeah that's a great question and something that i i think about a lot is how how do we make people feel welcome and how do we invite them in without making them feel like it's a business transaction and and if I were to stick in my lane in architecture, that's the con- kind of constant problem that I'm trying to solve of how do we use architecture to make people, particularly in my case, marginalized people feel welcome and feel like they can take up space in the golf course and feel valued to the point where they want to come back and play again. And that's that's the very basic goal that I that I pursue. So at La Hinch, what kind of work were you uh, specifically there to do? So um, we did a little short game facility across the road. So it's about a 120 yard range, just kind of a 
teaching facility, warm-up facility. And then uh, additionally to that, we did some modifications for the 2019 Irish Open, mm-hmm. which involves some new back tees and a little bit of fairway tweaking, um, some bunker work. But um, places like La Hinch, they, they, they're always looking to become better. And so I, I was there many times a year throughout my tenure with, with Hawtree and just always kind of picking away at it, making it better, little things here and there. So there was a lot of small projects that we did throughout the course of five, five years. It, it seems to me that a short game facility can be a great way to connect a community with a golf course. And uh, so in that short game facility that you designed at La Hinch, what were some of the big questions that you had to answer in designing it? Apart from the logistics of the size of the piece of land, which was, which was tight, it's, it's really small. There's a football field on the other side. So the logistics of it were quite complex, but, um, Things like that are often a quite quite a difficult to sell to some people because a lot of people imagine that if you can't hit a driver, then what's the point? <laughs> um, and the point the point was to allow, and I, I, I so I'm always just going back to this. It's just to allow people some time before their round to connect with each other before they play and to introduce themselves. And to have an icebreaker conversation or even just watch other people on the range hit balls. It's a, it's a place where you are interacting with, it's another opportunity to interact with different people um, while you're warming up and while, while you're getting ready for your game. Yeah. We were talking about this before we started recording about the, the design of an entrance to a course and what that does. And I, I wonder how, you might think that kind of thing through. I'm not sure how much control a golf course architect even necessarily has over the entrance to a course. Sometimes a golf course architect might have input. Sometimes that stuff is just sort of preordained or designed by somebody else. But what do you think makes for an effective entrance into a golf course? You know, say you're starting in the parking lot and then you walk into the golf course or maybe not even a parking lot. Maybe it's a train station Maybe it's just the neighborhood. What makes for a nice transition into the golf space, I guess? I think it depends who you ask. But for me, it's it's almost a lack of barriers. And I don't think everyone would have that opinion. But it's a, it's a continuation of where you're coming from. Or, or it's an easy access point from where you're coming from. And a lot of cases, in particular, in more, in more um, private courses, it's a really subtle transition from where you are to where you're going so small discrete signage with with some nicely concealed entrance gates or whatever it may be it's it's sort of a subtle transition that makes it most appealing to me um and and i think the entrance to a golf club is is more important than people playing may often imagine it to be because if you don't really notice it, I think it's a good thing. But if it's a bad entrance, you're going to notice it. You're going to remember it. And there are specific courses, say Toronto Golf Club, for example, or even Woodhill in Minnesota. These entrances that 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 wind you through the golf course before you get to the clubhouse. So you have the opportunity to get some sneak peeks at what's to come. And it's a, it's a really nice temptation and tease for for what's to come later in the day and and 
you're able to have this pre-introduction to the golf course that's really appealing to people. Yeah, I like that. I'm, I it, it puts me in mind of uh, Pasatiempo in California. Yes. And I, I, I'm not sure to what degree that entrance was designed by uh, uh, the Olmsteads because the Olmsteads did the master plan for the entire community. But certainly there is you're driving in and you see most of the front nine really mm -hmm. before you get to the clubhouse. And, and so you get these wonderful kind of flashes of great crazy greens and bunkers before you actually get to the place where you're checking in and, and starting to play golf. And, and it does kind of uh, transition you into uh, golf in, in a great way. The anticipation that you have is building and the excitement is mounting and it's just it's wonderful. All right. So I'd like to get into our main topic here, which is the ways that golf course design can change the culture of golf. Um, this is something that you talk about quite a bit. And so I guess the first question I'd have is, what are the main things about golf culture that you would like to see change? I, I'm sure we all have our, our individual things, but just from your perspective, what are the things that are most in need of addressing? Yeah, um, I, I've been around golf for most of my life, and I, I, I am not the target market. I am not the audience that golf was built for. And I often feel that golf does not love me as much as I love, love it. Um, so that there's this constant sort of tension between traditional golf culture and where I fit into that as a woman. And uh, I, I imagine that if I feel that way, other people might feel similar to that as well. And, and so it's this idea of of addressing how do we address a class issue, a gender issue, a race issue that golf inevitably has. And and the method that I know how to do that is through design. And if if we can simplify it, it's just how do we make these marginalized groups feel welcome and feel invited to the game so that they want to come back and they want their children to play. And they feel like it's a safe and conducive environment to, to spending their time. Um, and I don't, I don't have the answer to that yet. It's, it's a process. It's a pursuit. But I think it's interesting. And I think I'm always considering that. And, and if we ask these people what they want and what they want their experience to look like on a golf course, we might find some interesting answers. It's just, just that idea of inviting them to speak and, and have a say and take up space on the golf course. So for a lot of people, it might be obvious that these are things that golf needs to change. At least I hope that's obvious to people. But it might not be obvious how golf course design can help change them, right? Like, so so, why don't we just kind of go through things one at a time? You know, we don't have to tackle the entire problem all at once. We can just talk about some specific design elements that might help a little bit. And so, so what is one specific element that a golf course architect can incorporate into a course that you think would make the culture of that course more inclusive? Yeah, I, I think we can we can go from tee to green and and find a lot of problems with golf course design and how they're they're architecturally structured for anyone with adaptive needs. Um, we see a lot of stairs on golf courses. We see a lot of steep slopes. 
we see a lot of curbed cart paths that are all um, barriers for people with mobility issues, visual visual needs to come in and feel like they were considered it and they feel like they were, they belong in the golf course and, and to give this, them this equitable experience uh, of playing the golf course, we need to consider the slopes climbing up to tee boxes and, and just really ask them what they need on a golf course to be able to play it and enjoy themselves and be challenged appropriately and, and have fun and have a similar experience to someone who, who plays golf from the tips. And, and so for looking at, looking at it through that lens, there's a lot that golf courses can improve upon. We have safety standards for the clubhouse for adaptive needs, but you step outside and the golf course is something entirely different. Those are laws, right? With the clubhouse, there are a lot of laws that might govern that, but, but not as much with the golf course, which is a bit of a mystery to me. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to recognize these things unless we ask. So wh- why not see what what this particular group of people require on a golf course? And, and, I, and I don't think anything that they're asking for would neg- negatively affect the experience of anyone else who's playing the course. So it's just an enhancement of a course that you already have to invite more people into play. And, and this is a matter of eliminating these kind of sudden, these abrupt jumps from one grade to another. I mean, just to kind of get right down to it, having stairs instead of just a gradual slope is an issue for a lot of people. And I'd also imagine that cart path design factors into this as well. And this gets into a bit of a touchy issue because cart paths can affect the architectural integrity of a course, no doubt. Absolutely. But they they need to be there for a certain group of people. And so I, I wonder uh, to you, what, what does a well-designed cart path look like? What are the criteria for that? Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting idea because there's a balance there and we want to have a cart path as much as possible to allow people with adaptive and mobility needs to be able to use the golf course whenever they want. Um, so visually we have to be conscious of how how much the cart path is coming into our view and into play. And secondly, we don't want it too far away so that these people have are making you know twice as long of a trip to get to the middle of the fairway as everyone else. Um, so there's a balance there. Uh, ideally, there would be cart paths that we don't see that are still functioning for anyone who needs them. <laughs> it's hard. It's tough. It's definitely tough. And maybe there's a balance where there are specific holes where we need cart paths because of uh, the drainage issues or or sloped issues that that we we can hide, um, but. Additionally to that, we perhaps we can avoid using curbs on the cart path, even though they're aesthetically pleasing. Curbs don't allow people who are using buggies or solo riders to get up onto the fairway when and where they want. So it takes them longer to get to places because of that barrier. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, 
as well as 60 plus brands. They also use industry leading technology like TrackMan and Sam Putlab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22 yard increases off the tee and an average of 10 yard improvements in dispersion. On a personal note, I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself, and aside from getting clubs that actually work for me, the main thing I appreciated about the process was how much I learned about my game and the kind of equipment I should be using. It was genuinely eye-opening. So Friday listeners, here's the deal Club Champion is offering. Between now and the end of this year, you can use code FRIEDEGG to get 20% off the cost of your Club Champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code FRIEDEGG, all one word. All right, back to the episode. Now, let's talk a little bit about tee positions. Um, I have, we, we've discussed this topic before on the podcast. We, we did so with uh, Sarah Mess last year, but I, I think it's a endlessly complicated topic. Um, what are the main gaffes that you see with the positioning of tees at golf courses? Generally, they're pushed to the margins of the golf course, um, and that comes with shade issues from the trees that are often lining the tees or sunlight issues because of those trees as well. And the quality of turf just is, is doesn't match any other tee on the golf course. It's, it's so degraded and worn out that it becomes really unpleasant. And, and the, the forward tees are generally the last ones to, to get any uh, financial boost. So they degrade. Um, and they're smaller too, right? Which would, which would have to mean that they uh, wear and tear a little faster. That's it. That's it. And they're, and they're often not level. So the places that you're able to put the markers are usually in, in the same spots too often. So again, the wear is just, it, it just, they take a beating um, unlike any of the other tees on the, on the course. So, so there's a lot of playabilities that come with pushing tees to the side of the hole with shade and sunlight and airflow and wear because of that. How about the distance of a hole? You know, something I see a lot is the the forward tees just sort of like 10 yards in front of the uh, middle tees, which is ridiculous because that's, that's not the, the spread of people's distance. Um, but, you know, say you have just a regular old 400 yard par four from the back tees on that hole. I know there are considerations for how the hole is designed and uh, shaped and, and things like that, but generally how far forward do you think the most forward tees need to be if the back tees are at 400 yards? Yeah. So as you said, there are a lot of things to consider when choosing the position of a forward tee elevation um, of the fairway of the tee of the green angle hazard positioning, all of those things. But uh, generally for forward tees, we would say for par for par four, 340 yards would be the longest we would go. So that's a long par four for players playing the forward tees. A long par five would be 400 yards and a, a long par three would be 140 yards. So those three, 140, 340, 400 are pretty general markers that we we would use to base a forward tee program off of. So 400 yard par four, not overly long, not drivable. So somewhere 
around 320 would feel good to me. Gotcha. Um, okay, so let's talk about some other factors. What what are what is another design element that you think can help you know kind of change the culture of golf? Yeah, I just I just I I go back to thinking about my own experience on the golf course, and it it often so often stems from the opening interaction you have with the pro shop or the starter. Uh, and, and even before that, for me, it's, I, I, I don't particularly enjoy having to look up how many inches my skirt has to be before I go and play. Don't particularly like the thought of a man deciding that for, for me, but, um, so there, there are all these, these things that women in particular have to consider when you enter a golf course, um, anywhere from, from what do you have to wear to what rooms you're allowed to enter and what tees you should play and, and the interaction with people often dictate how your round is going to go. And I don't know how many times the starter will just point me to the red tees and say, the ladies tees are up there. <laughs> and you know, the, it's problematic. That, that's a right. problem. Um, it, it's assumptive and it doesn't, it doesn't do golf traditional golf tradition, any favors. Um, and, and so there's this, I think it starts from the beginning we have to look at how we're, what language we're using on the scorecard. Are we referring to the red tees or the forward tees as the ladies' tees? Are we um, rating the golf course from all of the tees for the women or just the forward tees and the white tees or the middle tees? And it goes on from there. Tees are a big one, as we discussed. Um, fairway lines are, are a really kind of low hanging fruit if I were to audit a golf course on how to make it more inclusive and accessible for more people in the sense that it's all about considering people who who can't consistently get the ball in the air so of course it's women but it's also juniors it's also seniors it's anyone it's beginners anyone who can't consistently get the ball in the air how are they navigating the golf course what are they traversing? Are there are there many carries, water carries, or natural waste bunker carries? Um, and so the fairway lines come into play in a lot of that. So if you have sort of a scalloped fairway line that comes in and out and in and out arbitrarily, it's often quite penal to people who can't lift the ball out of the rough because you're going from rough to rough to rough, and it, it's just slog. We can also look at the entrances to the green, how wide they are, and and ge- I mean generalizing. If you're able to get the ball in the air consistently, you're flying it onto the green, in particular in North American Parkland style golf. Um, so widening an approach to a green probably wouldn't have too much effect on your game, but it would have a really great positive impact for those of us who are hitting three woods into par fours. Does firmness play into this? Oh, yes. I love this question. Firm and fast is like, it's the best. The firmer, the faster, the better. I love it. So as I mentioned earlier, Camden doesn't have irrigated fairways. And maybe I'm super biased because I grew up on a course that didn't have irrigation. So it it just allowed me to become such a dynamic player because the golf course was so dynamic depending on the season and the weather conditions. And so you had to be pretty creative with, with your shots. And, and I think this translates to any golf course that firm and fast 
gives the opportunity for people who need a little bit more yardage to get it. And it also challenges the better players because um, they're always thinking about angles into the green. And so having them control their, their distance so that they can have a more advantageous second shot into the green, it's a win-win. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about Camden Braes. This course is in Canada, which is not traditionally thought of as the home of firm and fast. But it just shows that firm and fast is not just something that you get on the links land. It's something that can be developed anywhere. You might just have to sacrifice a little bit of what we would normally consider to be a well-conditioned course, whether that's greenness, lushness, a lot of water, et cetera, et cetera. So you're, you're saying, in other words, that firmness can be, you know, you can get some kind of firmness just about anywhere if you if you have the right approach yeah absolutely and i think a, a big element of that is um sort of educating people on on what the repercussions of lush green fairways and rough is uh and and how that impacts the bottom line of the golf course and how it impacts your the playability of the golf course and and just kind of re- reassessing this golf culture of green is better so this gets into environmental issues, sort of, right? The uh, maintenance practices obviously are are very related to the environmental sustainability of a golf course. But I'm curious specifically about where you see the intersections between environmental sustainability and the social function of a golf course. How, how might those two meet, if that makes sense? Does that question make sense? Oh, you tell me after I answered if I, if, I, if you think <laughs> okay. I understand. I'm not totally sure it makes sense to me yet. That's why I ask. There's no guarantee that golf is permanent. And there's this idea that financial sustainability is related to environmental sustainability because what is valuable to the younger generation will decide where they spend their money and how they consume product. And should a golf course become too indebted to its water consumption or its herbicide use, people will forget about golf and put their money elsewhere. And and I think in particular, these marginalized groups that I'm talking about, environmental sustainability or consciousness is, is top of mind at all times. And so for golf to not address that and think about that and implement that will be detrimental to the future of golf. And you're talking about this as kind of an optics issue, which is obviously uh, very important. The reputation of golf environmentally is going to be important to its future popularity. But it also strikes me that environmental sustainability might affect the affordability of golf. Right. The, the more water you have to use, the more expensive your golf course is going to be to play, the less people are good, the less, you know, the fewer kinds of people who are going to be able to play the course. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it goes the other way as well, as you just said, is if we're pumping all of this money into purchasing water, that's inevitably, inevitably only going to become more expensive. Then we are reducing the accessibility because our green fees are going way up. And our membership dues are going way up because the cost of maintaining a golf course has increased so much and, and the climate will dictate, no, the climate won't dictate. We will dictate how our golf course is able to change and shift with that climate 
rather than enforcing what we deem as high standard golf course onto the way that our climate is going. So what is an example of a course that you think really nails the social aspect of design? What comes to mind first? Windsor Park. Easy. They they know that they've done everything so well. And, and, and that's a great example of what we're speaking of because they used pretty basic golf design concept, traditional golf concepts to create this experience that is socially relevant and valuable and offers a lot of different type of people access to golf. They've done such a great job with it. Anything else come to mind? Yes, there's a really cool municipal golf course in Toronto. It's called Dentonia Park. It's 18 holes. They're par three. And the uh, pro shop is in the subway. So you can catch a subway from downtown Toronto, from Dundas Square, put your clubs on the subway, um, get off at Victoria Park Station, and you walk out and you're at the golf course. And, And there's just something so special about that about the accessibility that people will have to access the golf course. And um, it's par three, so you don't have to invest in in your driver or woods just yet if you're, if you're learning how to play. Um, it's not a huge financial investment. Uh, and um, it's just super fun. And, and they've done a really great job of making golf a part of the community there. What's the course itself like? Uh, it's nothing special. It's just just a golf course, but that's not what makes it memorable and important. It's like the ability to play this golf course with someone who's new at golf, a professional who just wants to get away from their country club. It's 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 just so such a mixed bag of skill level, demographics, ages. I mean, you name it. It's just you'll never see the same people there twice in terms of like it's not it's it's not homogenous in the type of people you see at the golf club and it's just there's something really special about that about how accessible it is because there's a putting green that's open to anyone you don't have to play golf you can just go and hang out with your mates and have a beer and there's no expectations and it's that experience that I'm always trying to bottle and replicate it's a short course, right? It's uh, it, it's all par threes, and I'm not sure how long the longest hole is, but it, it's there's there's a kind of total experience to what you're describing because if the pro shop is in the subway, then what you're telling people is you can come here on the subway. You you bring your clubs, but you're not going to bring 14 clubs. Probably you're not going to bring your staff bag. You're going to bring a a slim Sunday bag or something like that, and you can play this golf course, and it's it's all kind of linked together that way. If it were an 18-hole full regulation course, it might not work in the same way, right? No, it wouldn't at all. And, and it's that combination of being financially accessible, um, logistically accessible, and play the playability of the golf course is, is really soft and accessible. And all of those things combined create for this cool experience that is just so welcoming and inviting to to non-traditional golfers. And, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot lately, having young kids, and, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that families like mine are an underrepresented demographic in the game. I, I don't think that's the case, but I have come to appreciate courses that have accommodations for 
young kids that make it possible to bring a young family to the golf course and go have fun. I've come to really appreciate that. And, you know, there is, there are some really specific things that can be done that can help that. And one thing that I saw at Goat Hill Park in near San Diego is that they have this set of really far forward. I forget what they call them. They had a charming name for them, (laughs) but really, really far forward tees where you could just imagine little kids going up and whacking a ball toward the green. And that would be part of their experience of the course. So you were, it was inviting you to bring along your three or four year old, which is super rare at golf courses. And I I wonder if if that's something that you've thought about before, what the kind of family experience at a golf course might be. Yeah. And that's another great example of how the social equity we have can be applied that we strive for can be applied to a golf course of how do we make it inviting for families to come out and use the golf course so that this, this sport is generational and we encourage more people and as many people to play as we can. So that's a really great consideration. And so we've mostly talked about public golf courses so far, because that, that is where these questions are most pressing. But a lot of the work that architects get these days is at private clubs. And so I wonder what does inclusive design look like at the club level? How do you practice that when you're given a commission at a private club? For me, it's a it's basically just a full audit of the experience of a woman on the golf course and how they navigate the golf course and and what's lacking on the golf course. And it might be uh, washrooms on the course that are, are available and it might be a full forward tee program. And, and I think the what I really love to do is just be a voice for the women membership and the women contingency at a club to make sure that their needs are met at the end of the day when we deliver this final master plan that that's going to dictate the direction of the club in the next five years that the women's voices are heard and and the perspective is is valuable um so most of the time it's forward tees and and redesign of the the fairway lines and the tee boxes and the tree management that comes with that um and it's also um a bit more of the logistical aspects of what does the scorecard look like? What's the language we use in the scorecard? Are there enough restrooms that on the course? That kind of thing. So it's kind of full picture, inside, outside, hardscape, softscape, everything. I believe you're doing some of this work right now at Beaconsfield Golf Club, a uh, which is a Stanley Thompson course outside of Montreal. You're you're on this project with uh, Jeff Mingay, who's a, who's a friend of the pod, um, <laughs> a great guy, a really talented yeah. architect. Um, and, uh, so uh, my, my understanding, I'm not sure where I read this. I, it was a while ago, but my understanding is that you've had meetings with the women in the membership that, that this has been part of the process at that club specifically. Um, if that's, if that's happening, how, how is that process going? Yeah, that, uh, that is happening. And, um, one of the first things I did when we got that commission was, go and um, play in ladies day with all of the women and just get to know them and make a human connection and play the golf course and experience the golf course from the tees that they generally play. Uh, And it becomes very apparent very quickly um, that there are issues with the way that the golf course is set up um, playing from the forward tees. So uh, we were able to spend a few days together and anyone who wanted to participate 
women, girls were able to do so. And it was just mostly a conversation um, about how their needs are being met on the golf course. And then how, and then it's my job to translate all of that into the final plan. So it's going really well. And we're, we're on the, the final stretch. Um, and we have a, we have a Stanley Thompson night coming up where we're just giving Jeff and I are going to the club and going to tell them how cool Stanley Thompson is and why it's so important that they retain that history. Um, and, and again, it's just, a, it's just putting, putting faces together and meeting people and interacting with people and, and people will tell you what they need and you just have to listen. Christine, thank you so much for taking time out of your Swedish vacation to, uh, to talk to me. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Garrett, thanks for having me. I appreciate your curiosity. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you've been enjoying the pod, do us a favor and leave a rating and review in iTunes. That's a simple and very effective way to support what we're doing. We'll be back later this week with the fourth installment of our Bandon Dunes Deep Dive series in which Andy and I have a rousing discussion of Tom Doak's Pacific Dunes. See you then, and thanks for listening.